You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, again, for the privilege and the opportunity that it is to come together in this place tonight, to have your word open in front of us, to... um, to spend time worshiping you, to have the attention of our hearts and our minds and our souls turned off of um, the week. And Lord, I just pray that you would just really show up in our midst and that you would speak to us. Uh, Lord, I even now just feel um, just the, the tension of the late night even, just the darkness outside. And Lord, we just proclaim that we need your son to come and speak the gospel to us through the power of your spirit. And um, we need our hearts to come alive. Um, Lord, I know that that at times uh, I think this rhythm of following you for some of us can feel a little bit overwhelming and a little bit tiresome. And the things throughout the week can sometimes feel like a burden. And yet you say that if we come to you, you will ease our burdens. And so, God, that's, that's what we need from you tonight is to come and to speak to our hearts and speak to our souls Lord, in the midst of our weakness and in the midst of our frailty and in the midst of our shortcomings, we need you to come and stand in our midst and remind us of how great you are. So God, I ask that you would do that through the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth. And Lord, I pray that you would use them. Use them to cause growth in your people, to bring encouragement where needed, to bring challenge where needed. And I pray, God, that that you would cause them to be acceptable in your sight. Pray, God, that you would cause them to bring honor and glory to you, first of all. And that you would remind us that you are our rock and our redeemer. You are the one who comes to save and you are our sure and firm foundation. So, God, I pray that you would do that for us this evening. Do that for me as I preach your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Everybody said? All right, all right, all right. Just making sure you guys aren't asleep. Holy cow. I have to do cartwheels up here, right? Anybody want to come and do cartwheels? Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 30. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's what I want you guys to do tonight after the hearing of the reading of that passage. I want you to think back to your earliest memories of your biggest heroes. Just think for a minute about your biggest hero, greatest hero. It was a television show that you watched growing up or a a book you read, 
Who was it that was your hero? Who was your go-to, so to speak, when it comes to heroes? Who were they? And what was it about them that made you admire them? Why did you want to be like them? What similarities did you see between them and you, maybe? Or maybe, what did you see in them that was a strength that you know in you was actually lacking? Because I think what I'd like to propose tonight is this. I'd like to propose that, that, that our, our greatest heroes reveal some of the deep weaknesses and frailties and desires and longings of our hearts and our souls. Like we love our heroes, right? We love our heroes. And we love them because they exhibit great courage in the face of things that cause us great fear. We love our heroes because they conquer evil. They conquer injustice. We love them then, especially if we have experienced great evil or great injustice. We love our heroes because they exhibit great strength when we are confronted with our own weaknesses, our own frailties, our own shortcomings. We desire to live courageously. Like we long to resist um, evil. We long to overcome injustice in the world around us. We dream of a day when we won't be controlled by fear, maybe. We dream of a day when we won't be controlled by selfishness or pride or sin. We look for ways to prove that we are stronger than we really are. Simply put, what I think we do is that we, we strive to achieve greatness. I think that in the pursuit of heroism or in our love for our heroes, what we really admire in them is their greatness in light of our weaknesses. But the human heroes that we admire are just simply that. They're, they're human, right? They're broken, they're, they're sinful, they're, they're weak. All of their great attributes are really nothing more than just a shadow or a hook which is meant to cause us to wrestle with the truth that Jesus is the hero that we've all longed for. It's the hero that we've all desired. Jesus really is the only perfect superhero. He is. He's the only one who gives himself unselfishly for others. He's the only one who treats traitors and rebels and betrayers with perfect love. Think about his ability to love people who have been traitorous towards him and have betrayed him and have enacted their war against him. His ability to love them, to love you and I perfectly. He's the only one who doesn't get caught up in the corporate climb of success. He's the only one who makes good on all his promises. Think about how many promises you and I have broken. Jesus is the only one that comes through on all of his promises perfectly. He really is our greatest hero. <clears throat> Let's look back at verses 21 through 22. As we examine those verses, and we see Jesus' greatness on display when he says this, 
He says, The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus was determined to follow through with his plan, his predetermined plan to give himself as an innocent sacrifice for, for, for people who were guilty of betraying him. And think about it, he was, he was predisposed, predetermined, he had pre-planned, and nothing was going to shake him off of this plan to give himself as an innocent ransom for not just betrayers that are like out there, but one who was right there in his inner circle with his hand resting on the same table. Jesus is eating the last supper with his closest friends. In Jesus, we find perfection. We find perfect greatness. We find greatness in Jesus that we long for deeply. We see in him that he stayed committed to this plan to provide this ransom and redemption. Ransom meaning he meant to pay the price and redemption to save. He's going to redeem people through his work at the cross. And all of his work at the cross was sufficient enough to save even his worst enemies. Even his worst enemy who sat right at the table with him. This is like true greatness on display in Christ. On display in the face of great betrayal by a traitorous friend. Jesus could have wiped Judas from the face of the earth. Could have. He has the power for that. Jesus could have wiped Judas from the face of the earth. He could have pled with him to see the error of his ways. But Jesus didn't do either of those things. Jesus instead exhibits his greatness mercifully in that he warns Judas of the justice that is going to come his way. Think about the warnings that you and I have received in the Word of God. The warnings that you and I have received in the Word of God are an exhibition of the greatness of Jesus towards us. The warnings of the Word of God are an exhibition of the greatness of Christ and His words toward us. An exhibition of His great mercy and grace towards us. This is the greatness of Jesus on display as he gives this warning to Judas. Our tendency, our tendency is to be the betrayer, just like Judas. That's our tendency. Our bent, our natural, sinful, broken bent is to be the traitor, to be the betrayer. And it runs deep. We betray our closest friends to get ahead in life. We betray the integrity of our bank accounts when we overspend. We betray our employers when we pad our time cards. We betray ourselves when we break the little social rules that we set up deep down inside of us. The reality for us is that we really are a very weak and frail and broken and sick people. 
But Jesus' greatness far surpasses. Jesus' greatness far surpasses our weaknesses. Did you walk in here tonight feeling weak? Did you walk in tonight wrestling with your sin? Did you walk in tonight wrestling with your own brokenness? Struggling in your hurt? Struggling in your fears? Struggling with the lies that you've believed for so long? Did you walk in tonight in those places? There's good news for you. There's good hope for us in the message of the gospel. There's hope for us in this message in the midst of the gospel of Luke. As we near the end of this gospel, there is hope for us to be reminded that in the midst of our great weaknesses, Jesus is greater. He's greater and He far surpasses all of our weaknesses. The proof of that is made visible in the cross of Christ. This is where He's been headed all along. The cross is where He's been headed. That is His destination, the cross, where He would give His life as a ransom for the redemption of mankind from our sins by our faith through grace. If you're here tonight, if you're hearing this message, it is by the grace of God that you are hearing this message. And it is meant to bring you great hope. It is meant to build your faith. It's meant to remind you that at the cross of Christ, our weaknesses were laid on Christ who is perfect. Our weaknesses were laid on Him and that's why His greatness is so awesome. Jesus' greatness far surpasses all of your weaknesses tonight. We also see Jesus' greatness on display when Luke tells us that the disciples begin to question one another. This is a really interesting point in the text. Jesus' disciples arguing about greatness. You think about this for a minute. Jesus' disciples arguing about greatness. They begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? Can you imagine them for a minute? Oh my, oh my, who, who would betray Jesus? I wonder if it's you. Well, it can't, can't be me. That's the conversation they're having. I wonder who it is. Who is it among our family that will betray Christ? Who is it in our family that is going to shipwreck their faith tonight? Who is that person? That's the conversation they're having. And in the midst of that conversation, Luke tells us, a dispute arose among them. Isn't it interesting how conversations that are, that are, uh, that are all about, man, I wonder, I wonder who that really is, can always turn into a to a dispute, man, I bet it's you. I bet, I bet that's you. It could never be me, right? A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that in the midst of Jesus warning them, he's warning them through his words, somebody is going to be the traitor. Somebody is going to shipwreck. Somebody is going to biff it big. Woe to that man who does this. Woe to that person who follows that path, right? 
And in the midst of that, the disciples' response was simply to dispute among themselves. And I wonder who that is. I bet it's that guy. I bet it's that lady. Hey, did you hear about what they did wrong? I bet it's them. I've always seen that pattern in their life. It couldn't be me. Do you see the lack of humility and greatness in the disciples as they argue about who would be the greatest? Totally, totally missed the point. When you experience the sinfulness of humanity, when you experience the sinfulness of humanity on display through treachery and betrayal, you think about those two words, treachery and betrayal. Know somebody who's treated you treacherously? That's, that's a deep wound. You ever had somebody betray you? That's a deep wound. Even if you just observe treachery and betrayal from one person to the next and it doesn't involve you, it still hurts. I can be watching a movie and watch the treachery and betrayal that takes place in the plot twist of a movie and feel that pain deep inside. As we experience that, aren't you at times tempted to console yourself by thinking, man, somehow, somehow you're better than that person who committed that treacherous thing in their betrayal? Aren't you tempted to think that? I know I am. I know it's easy for me to think, man, I'm glad I'm not like that person. I can back that up real fast with some humiliative sounding statements like, well, by the grace of God, like I used to be a really bad guy, but today. And there's truth to that, right? And yet I can hide in that and miss the point that Jesus really is great and I really am weak. Listen, you and I, if left to ourselves without God stepping in and course correcting the ship of our lives as the good captain of the ship that he is, had he never done that, you and I would continue headlong off the nearest cliff as Traitors and betrayers of the God who created us and loved us from the beginning. This is where we would have had. This is where we would have headed. This is the picture in this text tonight as we look at this, as we look at the disciples' response. But yet a bigger picture in this text is Christ's greatness. Yes, we are weak. Yes, we are frail. Yes, we will fail. Yes. But in the midst of all of our weakness, Jesus steps in like the greatest hero ever. He is great. And it's proven in the cross of Christ. It's proven in His cross. When Jesus' closest friends and family are confronted with the weakness of one of their very own members in the form of betrayal and treachery, what they do is they promptly and inappropriately move into a conversation of debating who would be the greatest. This is not a new argument. This is not a new argument for them. They've been arguing this all throughout the gospel. I, I encourage you to go back and do a 
cursory reading of your own throughout this week and find the times that Jesus' disciples inappropriately began to argue over who was going to sit on the right hand of Christ in heaven. Just go back and look. There were a few of the disciples that Jesus called the sons of thunder. Reminds me of a WWE wrestling tag team duo. Sons of Thunder. James and John, I think, right? Always disputing back and forth. Always. What about Peter? Peter, man, his nickname was The Rock. Like if anybody gets to sit next to Jesus in heaven, if anybody had greatness, there's got to be somebody known as The Rock. Right? People's elbow. And just see that argument taking place. It's not a new argument. And in fact, I think this argument goes all the way back to the garden. And if I'm going to be honest with you, it probably goes back to before the garden because it's a satanic argument that's taking place. Satan, to begin with, could not handle the fact that all of the attention and greatness resided in God himself. And ever since the beginning, you could say, there has been this dispute about who would be the greatest. And the reality is, Jesus is the greatest. And the proof is in his sinless, innocent sacrifice at the cross. When we are faced with the weakness and and sickness of humanity... Don't we have the tendency, don't we all have the tendency deep down inside to like move on towards propagating our own greatness? Don't we attempt to uh, cover our frailty by propping up our accomplishments? Yeah, but, but I did this right. Yeah, but, but I got that right. Yeah, but I did this well. And when somebody else falls back into their sinful behavior or their sinful patterns, isn't it easier for us to say something deep inside of our hearts, even if we don't say it verbally? Isn't it easier for us to say something like, man, man, thank God I don't struggle with that anymore? Are we, in a sense, doing the same as the disciples are doing in this passage? When someone else causes us pain, betrays us, hurts us, abuses us, isn't it easier for us to say, man, I cannot believe that they would treat me that way. I don't deserve this. Isn't it easier to live out a sense of entitlement in that somehow I am greater? Isn't it easier for us to say, man, I'm glad I'm not like Judas. And then move quickly into the Man, thank God I have a spot reserved for me in heaven. Isn't it easier for us to think that? This is called spiritual pride. If you're here and you're a Christian, it's so easy for us to move into that. This was what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were guilty of, man. They thought they had it all together. They were all spit shine on the outside, filthy and dirty inside. There was no humility. And this argument between these disciples about true greatness in the very presence of Jesus, right? They're arguing about true greatness in the very presence of Jesus who is the essence of true greatness. 
just imagine the complex nature of what's taking place in this room around the family dining table. In the midst and in the physical presence of the one who is the essence of true greatness. This is the conversation that takes place. Jesus' greatness far surpasses our weaknesses. And the proof of that is in his commitment to the cross on behalf of traitorous and treacherous betrayers like every one of us in this room. Jesus' greatness far surpasses our weaknesses. As we look through verses 25 and 27, we see Jesus' greatness on display as he confronts the world's version of greatness. There is, a, there is a version of greatness that has been embedded in every one of us since the time we were born. And yet there is a biblical version, a godly version of what true greatness really is. And Jesus confronts that worldly version of greatness. He says this, as the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You see, the world's version of greatness sees authority and leadership as a way of exercising lordship over others for the purpose of selfish gain. This is the world's version of greatness. You are great and powerful if you have many people bowing down to you, many people serving your needs. The world's version of greatness sees the pursuit of a title as the means for controlling others to get what they want. The world's version of greatness is simply climbing our way to the top, climbing the ladder of success with runs made out of other people, stepping on other people to get yourself to the top. But this isn't Jesus' version of greatness. And Jesus' version of greatness is displayed in the attitude of teachable humility that a young child would have while sitting in the room. Jesus' version of greatness is displayed as the character of a leader who is willing to serve others by washing feet rather than seeing others as a way of climbing the corporate ladder or rather than seeing others as pieces of meat to serve our sinful and selfish desires or appetites. And when Jesus confronts the world's version of greatness in this text, what he's doing is he's confronting the sinful version of greatness that has influenced his disciples and really influenced us as well. He combats this false version of greatness by putting himself forward as the greatest example of greatness. I mean, that's kind of an interesting picture too, that he would put himself forward as the greatest version of Greatness. Well, the Apostle Paul said at one point in the scriptures that we should model him as he modeled Christ. 
The Apostle Paul carried some of the same humility. Who is it that you look at and say, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ? Who is it that you're able to look at and say, look, you can look to me for greatness. I can model for you the greatness of Jesus. I understand the tension for a lot of us as we think about that. To look at somebody else and say, look, I'm in your life to model greatness for you. Is that appropriate for us to do? I think it is. I think it's biblical. As long as who we're modeling for others is Christ. The question you have to ask is, do you model Christ for others? Has, has Christ's greatness so etched itself upon your heart and your soul that when you step into that role of leadership with others, that you model that same greatness to them? Now we see Jesus' greatness on display in the final portion of this text too, as he promises his disciples that they will definitely experience greatness in his future kingdom. And he makes this promise of greatness to his disciples when he says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is a pretty big promise that Jesus is making. Honestly, like if I were in Jesus' shoes, I wouldn't have made that promise to these guys. If I, if I were Jesus, it would have been very difficult to graciously affirm the preservation of the disciples' faith. Knowing that the very disciples that I was affirming would all scatter within the next 24 hours. If I were Jesus, it would have been very difficult to assign kingdom benefits to disciples who were inconsistent at best. If I were Jesus, it would have been very difficult to promise fellowship at the table to a bunch of dudes who were slow growing. And had a hard time listening to my words. If I were Jesus, it would have been very difficult to promise authority in my kingdom. But this is simply for me. This is my weakness. This is my weakness. Shedding light once again on the greatness of Christ. In, in your weakness, Christ is strong. And it is through our weakness that Christ's strength shines through. It's in our weakness that His greatness is brought to light. There's nothing that we can do or not do that changes the greatness of Christ. I wouldn't say that in any way. Christ is great regardless of how you or I live our lives. The question for you and I each is, is the greatness of Christ being etched upon your heart and your soul? Is it making change deep down inside of you? 
His greatness is on display in these final verses because in His promises, think about this promise that He makes to His disciples to have a place to sit at the table, to have authority and seats of judgment and influence. In that promise is found an element of His sovereign work of secure salvation. I want you to think about this for a minute. If the disciples' perseverance in the faith depended upon them, if their persevering in the faith depended upon them, they would have all scattered. They would have scattered and they would have stayed scattered. But we know that's not the end of the story. That's not what happens. Now you think about your tendencies deep down inside towards sin. If you're sitting here and you believe for an instant that you in your own strength could resist that sin, you are deceived. And you have no reason to trust in Christ. The thing that is so great about the grace of Jesus and the message of the gospel is this knowledge that Jesus is the one who does the work inside of each of us. Nothing can change that work. That's what makes this message so great. That's what makes Christ so great. In the midst of our weakness and our failures and our frailty, He is great. And if the fellowship of the local church depended on the disciples in our passage, it would have all fallen apart. With the responsibility to oversee the church by serving the needs of the church rested completely on the ability or the greatness of these disciples, it would have fallen apart. Jesus is the one who gives us the strength to persevere. Jesus is the one who binds us together in eternal fellowship with the family of God. Jesus is the one who uses his authority to serve us so that we can use our authority to serve others. This picture of Jesus, if you cross-reference with the other Gospels as well, you'll see him kneeling down on his knees and washing the feet of his disciples, including washing the feet of the one who is betraying him. The hand of the betrayer is on the table with him. And Jesus' greatness is on display as He serves them unselfishly, as He keeps His eyes focused on the cross where He's going to give Himself for them, as He confronts their worldly view of what greatness actually is. Jesus is great in the midst of our weaknesses. It's made visible in his commitment to the cross on behalf of sinful traitors like us. One of my long-standing heroes is my dad. My dad is a man who exhibits Christ-like greatness, has for, for years. Many of you have heard some of the stories, how he left when I was young. <clears throat> but the story doesn't end there. You know the stories of the brokenness that alcoholism and addiction brought to our family. You know the stories of what it was like to be abandoned and betrayed. Some of you have experienced some of these things yourself in your life. 
But what a lot of you probably don't know about my dad is that at one point he miraculously gave his life to the Lord, surrendered his life to Jesus. Over the course of a lot of years, our relationship was restored because of his pursuit of Christ, really because of Christ's pursuit of him, because Christ had become great in his life. And later on, when my sinful lifestyle had melted down in the middle of a street, um, in the back of a motorcycle at the front end of a big truck, my dad came and preached the gospel of Christ's greatness to me, reminded me once again that there is nothing that I could do to change my life. I was powerless and hopeless without him. That I was stuck in my own weaknesses and frailties and failings. And that what I needed was Christ, who is greater than those weaknesses, to come and to save me. That he had hung on a cross. That he had been brutally murdered for me. That he had been beaten with a whip. That he had a crown of thorns crushed down on his head. That this was the great servant of my soul who had impacted my father so deeply that his life had been radically changed. And because of that experience for him, he was now preaching the same message to me. And in those moments, I was instantly changed. I was changed. I was transformed. I was moved from that place of being God's enemy and living my life at war with him. I was moved from being that betrayer and that traitor of Christ who has loved me from before the foundations of the world. I was moved from that place to the place of the family where I was now called son. I was now adopted because of Christ's work at the cross. There was nothing that I did to make that happen. There was no seance type of camp-like prayer that I prayed to change that. On that day, the Holy Spirit, through the words of the gospel preached by my dad, God sovereignly chose to reach down and open my heart, regenerated me, made me a new person. The old person had passed away. new person was created in those moments. All because of the greatness of Christ. Have you met him? Do you know Christ? Is your mind caught up with the greatness of Christ? Have you come to that place where you've realized that he is greater than anything that you have ever done or not done? That he is greater than every bit of pain that you have experienced? Have you come to that place where you know that He is great? You may say, well, yeah, I've been coming to this church for the last couple of years. That's not what I asked you. What I asked you is, do you know that Christ is greater in the midst of your weaknesses? When you worship Him to song, do you worship Him with reckless abandon because the greatness of Christ has been etched on your soul? Are you like, nah, I'm, I'm kind of one of those reserved people. I don't like to sing real loudly. Uh, I, I don't really get all excited. Really, I get excited about Jesus who hung on a cross for you. I get excited when I realize that Jesus gave His life though you and I have betrayed Him deeply. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people say. When it comes time to worship my Savior, I'm ready to do so. With energy, 
Because He gave every ounce of His energy to go to the cross for you and I. And He sat at that table with the person who had betrayed Him and gave Him an invitation into the kingdom. The invitation was always there for Judas. Some people would like to argue that maybe Judas somehow got saved. I don't think so. I don't think so. <clears throat> it's a good argument. <clears throat> I just think that after he had betrayed Christ, you'll read later, that he went and hung himself out of his despair. This is a picture of someone who does not have Christ, or someone who has missed it. The warnings were there all along. Judas was in the presence of Christ intimately for three years. And yet he missed it. And yet in the midst of that, changes nothing about the greatness of our King. Jesus is greater. He is the hero that you and I have all longed for deep down inside. All of the heroes that we admire are simply human. Broken or weak. All of their great attributes are nothing more than a shadow or a hook that is meant to cause us to wrestle with the truth that Jesus is the hero that we've all longed for. Jesus is the only perfect hero. It's our failure to grasp the fact that Jesus is our hero that causes us to treat people so poorly. It's our failure to see the greatness of Christ that causes us to seek greatness in others that can never be given to us. It's our failure to see the greatness of Christ which causes us to strive so hard to come across as greater than we actually are. Do you see Christ as being greater than anyone or anything that you could pursue? Do you long for Jesus or do you long for another experience? Do you long for Jesus or do you long for more things on this earth? Do you long for Jesus or do you long for a person? What do you long for deep down inside? Jesus is the only one who gave himself unselfishly for others. We all have opportunities every day to give ourselves unselfishly for others. How often do you turn away from giving yourself unselfishly for someone else when you could have given of yourself more? He's the only one who does not get caught up in the corporate climb of fame and success. You might say, well, I'm not famous. I just work an average Joe job, right? Our tendency to try to climb the corporate ladder of success, to make a bigger buck, to get a bigger title, to finally get ahead, to finally have more authority, to finally get the respect that we think that we deserve. Those tendencies are deep down inside of every one of us. The question is, is, is that what rules your heart and your life? 
Or does this picture of God's greatness, Christ's greatness, proven at the cross, does that rule your life? Is the greatness of Christ etched on your soul? And do you see that working its way out in your lifestyle? Do you see the humility of a child? Do you have the desire to serve unselfishly? Or do you have a desire to serve so that others can see? Is this picture of the greatness of Christ etched on your soul? Jesus is the only one who exerts his authority lovingly. You think about the places of your life where you do have authority. Husbands with your wives. Even if you a boyfriend and girlfriend in the room. Men, do you love your wives? Do you serve them unselfishly? Are you willing to give up your time, your talent, your treasure to see her grow? Or do you resist that? Scriptures are clear for us and the picture of Christ at the cross and his work for the church and that he gave himself unselfishly, gave himself sacrificially so that the church could be washed clean. Men have a real issue today in serving and loving the women in their lives. Jesus is the only one who exerts his authority lovingly. How do you exert yours? Are you willing to wash people's feet? He's the only one who makes good on every one of his promises. How many promises have you broken? You and I are no different than the betrayer in this passage. Yet, yet in the midst of that picture of our weaknesses and our sins and our failures, there is this picture of Christ who is greater than all of that. Is the Spirit etching that picture on you today? Because that would be the picture of Him at the cross giving Himself unselfishly and lovingly and unashamedly and willingly on your behalf and on my behalf. Jesus' greatness far surpasses our weaknesses. And the proof of that is made visible in His commitment to the cross on behalf of our sinful, traitorous, betraying-like tendencies. His greatness far surpasses our weaknesses. Let me pray. Father, I thank you uh, for the opportunity to preach this text tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would use it to cause, um, I don't know, change in our hearts. Pray, God, that you would help us to see you as being great. But I get the heaviness of this text. I get the heaviness of the picture. Close friends sitting around a table. One person's going to betray him. And in that, we see a picture of our own weaknesses. Help us to see you as great. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to engage in communion together um, as we close and worship. We just encourage you to spend some time maybe uh, letting the Holy Spirit examine your heart. But let me also say this. 
that you could sit and examine your heart before you come and take communion. And that would be very biblical. Paul seems to make it clear that we should examine ourselves so we don't drink judgment upon ourselves as we engage in communion. But let me also say that when Paul says that in that context, he's saying this to people who are eating of the Lord's Supper in some very sinful ways. Let me also point this out. Jesus has just given his uh, body and blood speech just in the previous text. And he served it to Judas. Served that to Judas. There's something that really messes with me as I look at that passage and think about that story. Now let's, let me propose this question. It may be good for you to sit for a bit and let your heart be examined. But for some of you, it might be good if you just bum rush the front and, and get some juice and get some bread. Because there's something in that that deep down inside, you know there's nothing you can do in your seat in these moments to make yourself more worthy of being able to take communion. <laughs> but, I mean, what you're doing when you're taking communion is rehearsing what Christ did at the cross anyways. And you're remembering that, hey, I need Jesus to save me from my mess and my filth and my sin and my sickness. So for some of you, it may be right to wait for a bit and process some things in your heart. Ensure that you're placing your trust in Christ. For others of you, <coughs> you've done that. You've placed your trust in Christ, and, and this is a rehearsal of what Christ has done for you, and you need to, you need to get to the front and partake. So I just want you to think about those things. Um, there will be a few of us down front to serve that. Uh, thanks for letting me preach. Love you guys. message from the well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.